Welcome to the MCG podcast episode, Medicare and COVID-19, Recent Updates to CMS Healthcare Policy. Today is Thursday, May 7th, 2020. I'm your host, Snapper Plone, and today I'm joined by Cheyenne Santiago. She is the Managing Editor for Medicare Compliance at MCG Health, a company which develops evidence-based guidance used by nearly 2,000 hospitals and nine of the largest health plans. So welcome, Cheyenne. Thank you. It's good to be here. So before we begin, um, since our listeners may not be familiar with your role at MCG, could you give them some background information? Sure. I'm a registered nurse by training, and after several years in clinical nursing, I began working in the Medicare space, really focusing on Medicare policy education and Medicare medical review. Spent 12 years doing this, first at a fiscal intermediary and then at a Medicare administrative contractor once the MACs were actually created by the Medicare program. I've now been with MCG just about two years, and my current role then is the managing editor of the Medicare compliance content. Very good. Thank you for that. So during our time today, we'll talk about some of the major changes to CMS policy that have happened in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, I'm sure these won't be the last changes we hear about, but we'll cover what we know to date um, that could possibly impact clinicians working in utilization review and case management. So Cheyenne, can you give us a brief overview of the public health emergency declaration, where it applies, and what types of U.S. health care agencies it impacts? Yes. So on January 31st of 2020, this year, Secretary Azar declared a public health emergency. And that was in response to the national emergency that was declared by the president. When that happens, when there is a public health emergency, then CMS receives additional authorities to offer regulatory relief. Now the public health emergency that is currently in place has been declared for all 50 states, so it is not uh, localized to one or two particular states, which is what would normally happen after something like a natural disaster. The relief it provides is temporary. It typically ends no later than the end of the public health emergency. And you're right, it's not just Medicare regulations which can be impacted. It's Medicare, Medicaid, Children's Health Insurance Program, the CHIP program, um, even HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act requirements can all be waived or modified as part of the public health emergency. So given the size and the scope of the current public health emergency, there are a number of programs that are impacted and it's important for our UR and CM clinicians to know what impacts them directly. So because there's so much content out there, what we're gonna be working with today in this podcast will be specifically Medicare changes, and we're narrowing that scope even more to talk about those things that frontline UR or uh, case management clinicians would want to know. So what types of methods are being used to modify Medicare regulations? And can you describe the scope of these changes? Yes, there's a couple of different methods for modifying Medicare regulations. The primary method is going to be by having CMS go through the rulemaking process and issuing interim final rules with comment periods. They've done this a couple of times now. In fact, there's one that has just been posted. Uh, It will officially be published tomorrow, but you can uh, see it on uh, the website as of the 1st of May. And as part of these interim final rules then, they're offering waivers, and waivers come in two different types. There are blanket waivers, which would apply to every provider within the public health emergency area. So for this instance, this would be all providers in the entire country because the public health emergency applies to the entire country. 
And then there are individual 1135 waivers. And these are additional pieces of regulatory relief that individual states can apply for if they don't believe that the blanket waivers give them enough flexibility to still run their programs within their state. So what we'll be addressing today is more of the blanket waivers because there have been so many just across the board blanket waivers that have come out. Then the second way that you're going to see a modification of Medicare regulations is through the sub-regulatory guidance process. We have not seen as many changes through sub-regulatory guidance, but certainly the final rules have indicated that some other items were going to be waived via that process. So all of these scope, the scope for these changes, we're talking about Medicare fee-for-service. So CMS can waive guidance for Medicare fee-for-service and for Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage may even have additional benefits that are not offered to the Medicare fee-for-service population, but what CMS can't waive are state rules and regulations. So even where CMS has provided increased flexibility, if those increased flexibilities are in conflict with state uh, laws or regulations, then the state law would be what is followed. The more restrictive policy would be what is followed. So what kinds of changes by CMS should help prevent gaps in care? So preventing gaps in care is one of the primary functions of these waivers that are coming out. And probably the service that is most impacted by the changes is going to be telehealth or telemedicine. So the waivers that happen with telehealth apply to all patients. They are, don't apply to just those with the COVID-19 diagnosis. And they've come in two phases now because we've had two interim final rules that have been released. One that was released in April and the one that just posted on the 1st. So the first thing that got waived was location. T typically telehealth is restricted to rural locations and that requirement has been waived. Medicare will make payment for professional services furnished to beneficiaries in all areas of the country and in all settings. That means patients can receive telehealth in any healthcare facility. They can also receive telehealth in their homes. In the newest final rule, they're now also waiving limitations on the types of clinical practitioners that can provide Medicare telehealth services. So now things like physical therapists and occupational therapists and speech language pathologists are able to provide those telehealth services where they would not have been an included provider type prior to this. Another change that you'll see is outpatient hospital departments. They can bill for certain telehealth medicine services as well. In particular, CMS is addressing the billing of services where physicians are now providing telehealth services from their home rather than working in that hospital outpatient department. So the newest final rule has lots of clarifications on the different parts of the telehealth service that can be billed by the physician or by the hospital when they have that kind of arrangement going on. As far as covered services, initially they had 85 services added to the list of eligible services, including things such as emergency department visits, initial nursing facility visits, rehabilitation therapy, group psychotherapy, and even three telephone E&M codes. They're the 99441 to 99443 codes, which were previously considered non-covered. They weren't considered part of telemedicine. In the new rule, they've added an additional 46 services, so we're up to a total of 231 payable services that are on the list, 
And there are seven additional codes which are part of the range, but are either bundled codes or codes that Medicare doesn't typically pay. And there we're talking about things like reevaluations for speech language pathologists. Um, when a speech language pathologist does a reevaluation, they don't bill the reevaluation code they, in Medicare, they bill the regular evaluation code. So that code is on the list, but it wouldn't necessarily be paid. At this point, CMS believes that they have added all of the services that they need to onto the list. However, they want to make sure if there are more identified by the provider community that they can easily be added. So what they're doing is they're modifying the process for adding or deleting these services. Normally that is done through the rulemaking process, which is why you see these services added through these interim final rules. However, during the remainder of the public health emergency, CMS is going to be using sub-regulatory guidance that method for adding or removing services from that list. So providers will want to make sure that they're keeping up to date with their MedLearn Matters articles because they may see more services added or deleted through that process. When looking at technology, uh, since telehealth services typically require audio and visual capabilities for real-time communication, CMS did clarify that telehealth services can be done by a smartphone. In addition, CMS has waived the requirement for the video component for 89 of the 231 services on the list. It's mostly E&M services, check-ins, that sort of thing. They've also increased the payment for these services. So they, they issued an initial payment range for these telehealth services, but really what they heard from the provider community is that these telephone appointments are fully replacing in-office visits in many, many cases. And so CMS has acknowledged that that's what's happening in the community and has increased the payment for these telephone visits so that it's more reflective of what you would get for a standard office visit. And that payment increase is retroactive back to March 1st. A couple of other quick flexibilities for telehealth. Uh, the Office of Inspector General is allowing providers to reduce or waive cost sharing for telehealth services. And HHS has indicated that they will not audit claims for the statutory requirement that the patient and provider have an existing relationship. And that allows patients to see a new provider via telehealth and have that provider still get paid. So huge expansion in telehealth, lots of new services and new ways to get paid in that space. They're also looking at some other facilities, in particular in rural areas, there's been some expansion to the critical access hospital. So normally critical access hospitals are limited to the total number of beds that they can have, and they have an average length of stay requirement of 96 hours that they have to meet over the course of a year. And both of those regulations have been waived as part of the public health emergency, so they're allowed to open up additional capacity at the critical access hospital. They're also not then forced to transfer patients in order to keep them under the 96-hour rule when, in fact, there may be no place to transfer that patient to. In the skilled care or skilled nursing facility space, there's been a waiver of the three-day prior hospitalization requirement, and this provides temporary emergency coverage of SNF services without a qualifying hospital stay for those people who are experiencing dislocations or are otherwise affected by COVID-19. If you have someone who needs a skilled nursing facility or needs services, they can't stay at home because they have other high-risk people there, you can do direct MITs into the skilled nursing facility without that three-day hospitalization. 
CMS is also allowing renewal of the benefit period. It is a restricted waiver. The waiver only applies to those beneficiaries who have been delayed or prevented by the emergency itself from commencing or completing the process of ending their benefit period on their own. So if you have a patient who normally would have gone home and therefore broken their spell of illness but could not go home because of isolation precautions or something like that, this is who those this uh, particular waiver is intended for. Skilled nursing facilities have also gotten some flexibility as far as their minimum data set assessment and transmission timing, um, because we know that those comprehensive assessments can be difficult to get done on time in the best of circumstances. But if you have a large population moving in and out because you have COVID infections, it's gonna be even more difficult. So they lengthen the timeframes for those. And then also your physician and non-physician or practitioner in-person visits for nursing home residents can now be done under telehealth. And we talked about that a little bit earlier. So you don't have to have those uh, people coming into the facility um, and risking transmitting COVID between facilities. They can do those visits via telehealth instead. The last space I wanna talk about is home health. Uh, so in home health, we've had a change to who can do certification of a home health plan of care. So initially, uh, the person who had to establish that a patient required home health and actually certify their plan of care was a physician. And that's been expanded to include nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, and physician assistants. They can order home health services and establish and review plans of care and certify that that patient is eligible for home health services. There's also been a modification to the definition of homebound. So typically a patient has to be considered homebound in order to receive home health services. And so what CMS is saying here is if a patient has been told by their physician that they are at higher risk for contracting COVID-19 or having complications from COVID-19 and therefore has instructed them to self-quarantine at home, that patient is considered homebound and now eligible for home health services. The only place it does not apply is if a patient is voluntarily on their own quarantining themselves because they have a concern. There has to be an interaction with the physician and the physician has to agree that that patient really does need to self-quarantine and be in the house in order to meet the new homebound definition. The required face-to-face -face encounter for home health is now uh, available via telehealth. And then also, like the skilled nursing facility, your OASIS timeframes are extended. So the five-day completion requirement has been extended up to 30 days, as your 30-day submission requirement has been waived. The other things that you can look forward to in the home health space is initial assessments or homebound determinations can be done remotely or by re record review. Um, so those don't necessarily have to be done as an in-person in visit. And then also they're increasing the flexibility of who can perform the initial and comprehensive assessment for all patients who are receiving therapy. So normally occupational therapy can only do that initial assessment if occupational therapy is what's driving the home health. Um, but now occupational therapy can do that regardless of which therapy is actually driving the plan of care, just to make sure there are enough therapists out there and available to be able to do those assessments. Can you tell us some of the more specific changes CMS made around COVID-19? Sure. So the changes more specific to COVID-19 have to do with the actual testing for COVID-19. 
So typically a written order from a treating physician is required in order to get paid for a diagnostic test. That meant that Medicare um, beneficiaries couldn't go to like a parking lot uh, facility to get tested. They couldn't go to an urgent care to get tested because those would not be recognized as their treating physician. So CMS has waived that. So they don't have to have that written order from a treating physician in order to get testing. And that opens up those additional sites to Medicare beneficiaries. In addition, pharmacists can perform certain COVID-19 testings depending, again, on their scope of practice and their state law. So that's going to open up some additional sites, not only parking lot sites, but now pharmacy locations where Medicare beneficiaries might be able to get tested. And then hospitals will be paid for testing, even if that's the only service that they provide. So if it's actually a hospital that's running a parking lot um, testing facility, like we have here locally, Medicare beneficiaries can go through those and the hospital will be paid for that testing. In the new final rule, we also are seeing that there's a clarification about the blood-based serology testing. That's the testing that is done to detect whether a patient may have previously been infected. So somebody who's not showing symptoms now, but might have been sick in the past. Um, and so when what CMS has determined is that because those serology tests may be used in order to modify treatment or isolations of, of individuals, that it does in fact meet the benefit category of a diagnostic test. And therefore, FDA authorized COVID-19 serology tests, those will also be covered. Can you tell us about some of the changes that are more utilization review specific? Sure, there's a lot going on in the utilization review space. First, CMS is waiving the entire utilization review condition of participation for hospitals that says that a hospital must have a UR plan with a UR committee that provides review of services furnished to Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries. Um, they are removing this administrative requirement to allow hospitals to focus more on resources on providing direct care um, rather than having them do these reviews and using them in the UR capacity. The other most significant change has to do with national coverage determinations and local coverage determinations, and specifically those related to respiratory-related devices, oxygen and oxygen equipment, home infusion pumps, and home anticoagulation therapy. For those particular services, CMS will not enforce the clinical restrictions found in those NCDs and LCDs that would otherwise restrict coverage of these devices and services for COVID-19 patients during the public health emergency. That means clinicians will have more flexibility in determining patient needs for respiratory-related devices and equipment and flexibility for more patients to manage their treatments at home, but will need to continue to document those decisions in the medical record. Now in the final rule that just posted, it's important to note, and CMS has actually issued a clarification in this new final rule to say it was not their intent to imply that items and services can now be furnished or ordered without reason during the public health emergency for the COVID-19 pandemic. Services still have to be medically reasonable necessary for the patient. So I wanna give you an example of that. Let's take the LCD for glucose monitors. It's L33822. There are a number of clinical requirements, including a face-to-face -face visit that typically a Medicare beneficiary must meet prior to being eligible for a continuous glucose monitor. Those requirements, in particular the face-to-face, -face, 
are not being enforced by CMS because they want providers to be able to supply these monitors to additional COVID-19 patients who may be at risk for unpredictable impacts of infection on their glucose levels and their health in general. So in this case, the use of the continuous glucose monitor is reasonable and necessary to proactively treat the patient's diabetes and hopefully prevent the need for hospital-based care, whereas the standard coverage for this monitor is in reaction to a patient who has failed other uh, glucose monitoring devices and other glucose uh, interventions. So practitioners could also provide a monitor for more of their diabetic patients to better monitor their glucose and adjust their insulin doses at home rather than having them have to come into the office. So really the intent is it's still medically reasonable and necessary for that patient. And really what we're trying to do with this or CMS is trying to do with this is free up beds. Let's prevent hospital complications so those beds are available to people with other things that are going on. Now, providers still have to maintain a medical record that supports that the item or service was actually provided, it was provided at the level that they billed it, and that it was medically necessary for that specific patient. So all of those rules are still in effect. And then a handful of NCDs and LCDs were specifically identified by CMS in the initial final rule. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we will be adding that listing to our community page and we will be adding that listing to the summary of changes in the MCR content to help our clients understand which LCDs and NCDs are impacted. It's important to know that it's not an all-inclusive list. Uh, really, the provision is for any LCD or NCD that covers any of those services that I mentioned, um, but it is a good starting place. And it's also important to note that there's no update to the actual LCD or NCD. So there's nothing on the cms.gov website right in the Medicare coverage database that will tell you that the clinical indications have been temporarily suspended. Um, that's why we are posting that list on both our community page and in our summary of changes, just to help people be more aware. As I mentioned in the prior example, one of the other waivers that is happening is in regards to NCDs and LCDs that contain requirements for face-to-face -face visits or evaluations or assessments prior to providing an item or service. CMS is waiving these requirements as well across all NCDs and LCDs, not just the ones that also have clinical flexibilities. And it is waiving them only when it's the NCD or the LCD that has the requirement for the face-to-face. -face. If the face-to-face -face requirement is found in statutes, like the one for home health services, that's a statutory face-to-face, -face, you still have to do that face-to-face -face service, um, but it is very likely that you'll be able to do it by telehealth because of the expansion of the telehealth program. Now, I know that in the provider community, there's always some concern about retrospective audits from RACs or other government entities. So when the pandemic has finally passed, and I know that's going to be a little while, should providers still be vigilant about their clinical documentation? So there's always concern in the provider community about retrospective review. So Medicare, the Medicare program in particular does more retrospective review than they tend to do prospective or concurrent review. 
And so anytime that you have a relaxing of regulations, there's always a concern that CMS will come back and do probes on those claims to ensure there wasn't abuse of those regulations. Um, and then there's concerns that the providers and maybe the Medicare administrative contractors won't interpret those uh, relaxations of those regulations in the same way. So certainly I've heard that from the provider community that there is concern about that. Um, that will most directly apply to the NCDs and the LCDs and what, how they've released the kind of relaxed the clinical for those items. When it comes to things like telehealth, those rules are, are fairly firm. So there's a list of services. So the service is either on the list or the service is not on the list. And so having those expanded services um, it's pretty much a sure thing. That's not something that's going to be audited um, as much as something like, did you provide oxygen, home oxygen to a patient who doesn't meet the NCD, but you still had enough medical documentation to support that they were going to need that oxygen at home. So there is some concern depending on what type of flexibility that you're, you're looking at. And there certainly is always concern about post-payment review, whether that post-payment review is being done by the recovery auditor, it's being done at the MAC level itself, or it's being done by the supplemental medical review auditor. Um, there is always that concern. And certainly it's possible that even the Office of Inspector General, the OIG, will go back and do studies to see how these flexibilities were used and that would will involve having providers submit documentation to the OIG as part of those studies. So um, definitely there's concern about that. But like I said, some of these regulations are, are pretty firm and then others I've definitely heard that about. I think really what's critically important to, for those providers who are concerned about post-payment review is that we do remember our, our fundamentals. You know, is even if something doesn't perfectly aligned with an NCD or an LCD? Was it medically reasonable and necessary for the patient? And does your documentation say, this is the picture of my patient, this is why it was medically reasonable and necessary, here's my proof I actually gave it to them, and here's the code that is appropriate for that. And if they have that put together, it, it should not be a problem, even if there is retrospective review. So I'm sure we'll see additional changes by CMS in the future. You know, are there any good places uh, to go for immediate access to the latest updates? CMS has multiple listservs that are divided by area of interest, and, and you're absolutely right. We're going to see more changes, um, maybe even before we post this podcast. That's kind of the rate at which these changes are coming at us. Um, so if you're on any of the main categories of CMS's listservs, you're going to be send, seeing these COVID-19 updates. Um, if you're on several of their listservs, you're probably getting them in duplicate or triplicate at this point. In addition to that, CMS has a current emergencies page on the cms.gov website, and that's a nice place to start if you need to kind of dive into what's been released. Not only do they have one document available that lists all of the changes that they have uh, put out there, all the waivers they've issued, but they've also created some divided up by provider type fact sheets where they've picked and kind of chosen across the two final rules the ones that impact physicians or the ones that impact skilled nursing facility and consolidated those on a single fact sheet so you don't have to wade through the entire final rule to get the information that you need. So definitely another good place to go to get more information. Before we go, 
Do you have any final thoughts on the hospitals and healthcare workers who are on the front lines of this pandemic? So I think it's important to recognize that while relaxing regulations certainly removes barriers to trying new ways to care for people during the crisis, uh, caring for a large number of infected people still takes time and resources, and I commend everyone who is doing it right now. Uh, absolutely critical for our country, um, but also understand that communities don't all have equal access to these resources. Um, as an example, as we begin to see an increase in cases in rural communities, as their access to testing really improves, um, some of those communities don't have access to telehealth services. Some of those communities don't have access to some of the serological testing. They, they don't have the same things that might be available in the larger urban areas. So relaxing regulations or including more services in uh, Medicare altogether doesn't really help them. So those health communities may also just not have the time to keep up with all of the changes if they're being overwhelmed by patients that they have in their facility. Um, so I think we just need to be really diligent in helping to educate providers across the country so everybody knows what, what they're able to do to help this population as best as they can. Well, I want to thank you, Cheyenne, for helping us talk through these critical CMS policy updates. I know there's always a lot of interest in CMS rules and how they apply, especially during times of crisis. And so we do appreciate your clinical and policy insights to make some sense of them. Thank you. Certainly. I'm happy to help. As a note for our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about MCG, please visit www.mcg.com and click on Contact Us, or you can call us at one 888 464-4746. Thank you for joining us today and please stay safe.